Chapter Three of Six Women and the Invasion by Gabrielle Yerta and Marguerite Yerta Malera. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by J. L. Baldwin. Chapter Three. Sleep was long in coming that night. After much talking, we were still at a loss what to think. Were the Germans really at our gates? I cannot believe it. Groaned Genevieve. It is a collapse. It is the end of all things. If we are invaded, what shall we do? The next day we renewed the discussion. If the Prussians come, we have but to wait for them with a bold face, said Genevieve and Colette. Madame Valene hesitated. Mother, exclaimed Yvonne and Antoinette, we cannot stay here. Think of the risks we run. What shame, retorted Colette, to run away like a troop of rabbits. I had never thought you were such cowards. The others repeated with one accord. And if mother was taken as a hostage, the Germans are capable of anything. They have already committed many atrocities. Our perplexity was great. About ten o'clock there dropped from the sky three new surgeons, and pressing on them a cup of coffee we renewed our anxious questions. They told us plainly that the Germans were gaining ground and that we were sure to see them. What do you advise us to do? cried my mother-in-law. Madame, Dr. Sesamon declared, he was bearded, jovial, and fatherly. Madame, if you were relations of mine, I should urge your departure. Well, the die is cast. We shall go, declared Madame Vélène. Yes, I said, but the house is not in order. A few days ago, as I went to Madame Lantois to buy some eggs, the farmer's wife told me with great satisfaction. I feel quieter now. My house is in order. It was as much as to say that all she set store by had disappeared. The family had hidden, buried, and walled up whatever they had been able to hide, bury, and wall up. Our guests of yesterday's dinner had told us that the owners of a northern farm had unpaved a yard, dug a huge hole, huddled in pieces of furniture and pictures, and then filled up and repaved it. This farm could await the invaders. It was in order. But our house was not in order. That was obvious enough. "'You have here,' said our visitors, "'a beautiful empire clock. "'It would be a great pity to have it sent to Germany. "'And this lovely console table, and those vases.' "'A few minutes after, the two officers, "'with whom we were gravely discussing, asked, "'Where is our friend Laison?' "'In the garden with Colette digging holes. "'Is he? Then we will, too.' "'And soon after, our visitors, in their shirt-sleeves, "'seemed to strive who would dig hardest.' and we, just as busy, ran in all directions and brought in objects of every kind. In order to carry out our plan, we had to look for a favorable place. In front of the house stretches a velvet lawn planted here and there with firs and pretty reeds. We could do nothing there. But beyond there are beds in the gardens, shaped like a lozenge, a crescent and what not, box-edged and planted with shrubs. That was the right place, and we proved it by digging there six or seven big holes. The largest received the drawing-room clock, carefully wrapped up in oilcloth, with other clocks almost as dearly cherished. On this side we buried silver, on that old china, with a great deal of bustle and haste. Is the old Rouen jug buried, and my yellow tea set? I will bury that too, it is too lovely to lose. The work drew to an end, and by a masterpiece of cunning we strode the newly dug ground with dry leaves, twigs, and small pebbles. Dr. Laison went into ecstasies about the garden he had made over the grave of the clocks. He was thinking himself a match for Lenotre when he gave a start. What is that? 
the buried treasures indignant at their ill usage protested against it by the voice of the empire clock which began to strike the hour as we listened to the silvery yet hollow sound which came from the earth we were reminded of a tale by edgar poe but we had to apply our thoughts to other cares and hide the linen and clothes after our guests were gone loaded with grateful blessings we hardly spared the time to swallow a hasty dinner and went to give the finishing touch to our work now there is between the ceiling of my bedroom and the roof a very dark and lofty space that might serve as a very good hiding place but the ladder was too short to get to it so we put it on a table and i astride on a beam concealed in the accommodating shadow the things which my sisters-in-law posted on the ladder like so many tilers busy with new roofing handed up to me we spread out and heaped up at first linen then clothes furs shawls carpets curtains eiderdown coverlets and a big lion's skin with many exertions we even hoisted up to the loft a console table colette standing on tiptoe at the other end of the attic declared it looks quite empty you can put in more things thanks we are quite stiff enough for once thank heaven the germans don't come every day or we should not be equal to the job downstairs we took down looking-glasses and pictures and concealed them as well as we could behind cupboards and bed curtains they showed a little but we hoped the germans would see nothing of them we could not bury watercolors or oil paintings could we at last the house was in order and we went out for a little stroll the village was silent dead not a cat in the streets all the doors and windows were closed it was evident that every one was giving himself wholly up to the very sport we had just enjoyed all were vying with one another in hiding their treasures and were racking their brains to find unknown holes and undiscoverable hiding-places i wish to state here that there is a gap in our public instruction a want in our literature since we are provided with such alarming neighbors every schoolmaster should devote two hours a week to teach our youth what precautions to take in case of invasion moreover in my leisure hours i intend to write a book on the art of concealing applied to invasion this may open a new field of literature for they will certainly lose no time in answering the work from the other side of the rhine with the treasure seeker's guide or a handbook for the complete plunderer we shall have therefore to study the question and improve the art of hiding in this respect it is true an ancient instinct may serve as a guide an instinct which has had no better chance of expansion than the corner of france we belong to this rich country has excited the lust of all conquerors before the christian era the romans subdued it and later on the franks laid hands upon it attila as colette said but yesterday may have sent a few patrols down here then came the normans who levied contributions on us and the english who took their ease at the inhabitants cost during the hundred years war later the troops of philip the second plundered us and last century eighteen fourteen eighteen seventy two inauspicious dates we knew the strangers twice more therefore when the alarm spread the enemy are advancing the order of the day which we knew by right of inheritance went round let us hide let us hide all kept on hiding and we hid too and our departure we had decided to go that was well and good but how should we go we could not go by railway and we could not find a horse and a carriage in the village for their weight in gold madame valen went in haste to monsieur la serbe who was setting out with three carts drawn by oxen he promised to take us and our luggage with him as little luggage as possible never fear i will tell you in good time there is no danger for the present these words gave us confidence 
we would fly, but whither in this train of sluggard things? I have mentioned the ridges that lie to the south and the west of Morny. In the country these modest hills are pompously called the mountains. Now everyone was convinced the Germans would shun the mountains. An army always goes along valleys, does it not? And what would the enemy do in this uneven region, where orchards and pasture-grounds alternate with rocks and woods? It is not the right place to fight in, the people said, and in a hamlet in this happy part of the country lives an old relation of ours, Madame La Roy. We decided to go to Cousin La Roy. We were sure she would receive us with open arms. There we should see what to do next. And when once the enemy had passed over both sides of the mountains, we could get to Switzerland, the south of France, or Brittany as we chose. Meanwhile, after this busy day, we really wanted rest, and tonight at least we would sleep our fill. But we do not shape our own ends. At half-past two we were up. Foot soldiers passed in the street. At three we were standing at the window, busy pouring out wine or coffee. Our poor, poor soldiers, so cheerful, so lively, so full of gay spirits but a month ago. In what a state did we see them return? Bent, wayworn, they marched painfully. Yet they marched, but as soon as they were ordered to stop, they dropped to the ground, and many fell asleep on the spot. Still, when they heard we were giving something to drink, they came tumbling one over another, and gathered around the window. A captain advanced, quieted the disturbance, and ordered the sergeants to distribute the bottles of wine by sections. At the sight of this officer, I suddenly understood the gravity of the hour. Dark-haired, with firm and yet fine features, he bore in his eyes the bitterness of the retreat, the horror of the defeat. A look on his tragic face informed me of the truth, better than long speeches. Beaten. We were beaten. France was lost. Oh, God, is it possible? Has God suffered this? No, no, it is not so. I see now the flames, that protest in the feverish eyes. We will die, but we will struggle to the end. Yes, dear soldiers, brave heroes, you will struggle against the enemy. Happy that you can still take an active part. While we, we can but wring our hands in despair and support your courage with love and earnest prayers. In this terrible moment, our eager goodwill could do no more than ask. Do you want a cup of coffee? The water is boiling. Madame, with pleasure. Then someone called the officer, and he had to go without his coffee, for which, by the way, many were eager. The village was awake, and all were desirous to bring food and drink to the soldiers. But the soldiers were so many that a great number certainly got nothing at all. Day broke, and the men still passed on, always as dusty, always as tired, all regiments, all arms mixed in confusion. We did our best to relieve as many as we could. In the morning the crowd grew thinner. We saw only stragglers and cripples. How many we took in to comfort and nurse I cannot say. They were too many. I remember the clerk of the telegraph pointing to his right hand, of which the fingers had been shot off. What shall I do now, he said, and the girl I am engaged to? Will she marry me? Of course she will, or she would not be French. And then came a soldier wounded in the leg, and, in spite of his sufferings, he hobbled on with a stick. In admiration he indicated Antoinette with a movement of his chin, and declared in his Lorraine brogue, "'That girl there, she has dressed my wound much better than a trained nurse.' A little linesman moved our pity still more, and even now we cannot talk of him without emotion. He was very young, with a childish face, his motionless features expressed an immense stupor, a grievous surprise. "'What? 
That war? That was war, this wonderful thing we had so often heard of? It was this retreat, these toils, these sufferings? For three weeks he had not taken off his shoes, and his blistered feet were so swollen that the poor fellow could hardly walk. Genevieve washed his poor feet, and Colette, the over-fastidious Colette, wiped and bound them up with tender care. We got him fresh socks, and the little foot-soldier, after a comfortable breakfast, went on his way again. As he left us, he looked around him with amazement depicted on his face, and said, The Germans will punish you for that. In these busy hours we had as many opportunities to wonder at the energy and vitality of our race. As soon as the soldiers, spent with fatigue and disheartened, had rested a bit and swallowed something hot, they renewed their vigor and even recovered gaiety enough to tell us their adventures, to laugh at the German shells, which often do not burst, and whose fragments run over the cloth of their uniforms, they assured us, without doing any harm. But, and there they dropped their voices to a whisper, we have been beaten because there are traitors among the generals. This opinion drove us to despair. We did not give credit to it, but what would happen if the men reposed no trust in their chiefs? And what could we answer to the poor fellows? I recalled to Genevieve's memory Captain Vachon's saying, Beaten soldiers always call out treason, and they are not wrong. A traitor is not merely a man who basely and selfishly sells his country. He is a traitor, too, when he is not equal to his duty. We did our utmost to hearten our guests of a moment, to cheer them physically and morally, and then one after another they resumed their journey. A touching detail. Every lame soldier was attended by a comrade who took charge of him, carried his knapsack, held him up, and was as careful of him as a mother of her child. About noon, when all had gone away, Yvonne and Colette, who kept a watchful eye upon the street, cried out, "'Something is happening towards the pond,' and set off running thither. They found that a soldier had suddenly gone mad. Half-naked, up to his waist in water, he shrieked and gesticulated, and four men had a hard struggle to master him. Trifling as it was, this incident brought the people's excitement to its highest point. "'He is a Prussian,' said one. "'He is a spy,' retorted another. This time the people snatched at their luggage, were off in an instant, and came back an hour after. The level crossings were not open to civilians for the present, or at least to carriages. Our state of mind was that of a fish caught in a net. Terror spread amain, and won complete power over the public mind. None knew what he dreaded, and all men reasoned themselves out of reason. Our arguments were proved absurd and grotesque by the event. A mist was over us. It was no more the pillar of fire, it was the pillar of cloud. It was no more the shadow of approaching glory, it was the black shadow which impending invasion casts before. News kept coming. The Prussians are at Marl. No, they have been driven back. Perhaps they won't come down here. Driven back? Oh, you simpletons, have you not just seen our army pass? Are you not conscious of the void which draws on the enemy like a cupping glass? In the village, so lively, so busy but a few days ago, is there a single uniform left? At heart, the people felt uneasy. The cars were loaded, the horses harnessed, the drivers on the lookout. Animals and people were but waiting for a signal to rush upon an unknown fate. The signal came. It was about six. Tired, I was lying down in the drawing-room, when all of a sudden a gunshot resounded in the air, and directly after followed sharp firing. At a bound I was up in the attic. At another I flew to the garret window. Like a gargoyle stretched out on the edge of the roof, I scanned the horizon. Northward a light puff of smoke vanished in the upper branches of the poplar trees. 
Nothing was to be heard, but I beheld the confused flight of all creatures that were out in the fields. A man standing in a car lashed his bewildered horse with all his might. Fowls and even pigeons hurried away to poultry-yard and dovecot. What had happened? I hastened down. The house was empty. I jumped out of the window. At the corner of the street I caught sight of Genevieve. I ran after her as fast as I could. We met at the crossroad where a crowd had gathered. What is the matter? A patrol, an English patrol. We cast a look at the field-grave backs which rode away on big horses. English, it may be. But at what did they fire? It was a signal. No, they have shot carrier pigeons. You are mistaken. They have arrested a spy. In fact, they had taken away a French soldier, bareheaded, who looked about him with a profoundly ironical air. Oh, murmured the crowd, it was easy to see he was a spy. He seemed to laugh at us. He was laughing at you? I am sure he was, the poor man. English soldiers. English soldiers. Oh, you blind of one, of two eyes, threefold idiots, how foolish you have been. They were twelve in number, and the village was armed, and the men were there, and Prussians in flesh and bone, as quiet as can be, took the high road to Léon. We, quiet too, came back home. There now, we had had our warning. Our hearts were still throbbing violently, but all the same we plucked up courage again. The English keep watch and ward. Each one laughed at his friend's fright. We thought particularly ridiculous the attitude of one of our neighbors, Marthe Tunillard, a tall young woman, ruddy-cheeked and dark-haired, who at the first shot had rushed headlong on her overloaded barrow. Resolutely she laid hold of it, and with her two children hanging on to her skirts, flew away bewildered but energetic, she knew not where. But she fled straight into the hottest of the fight, had one taken place. Nevertheless, the passage of the patrol was looked upon as suspicious. We put no trust in this lump of flour, the peasants thought, like La Fontaine's mice. If we hear the guns now, it is the right moment for flight. Yvonne ran to Monsieur Le Serbe. When and how were we to go? The messenger came back struck with dismay. La Serbe refused to take charge of us, the traitor, and he had pledged his word. He alleged he had no places left. Well, what were we to do? Whither could we turn? Could we go on foot to-night? Madame Valen hesitated. She thought it dangerous in this troubled time to run away by night through woods and fields. We will see what to-morrow brings, she said. Mother, to-morrow may be too late, retorted Antoinette. The first thing to do, said I, is to have supper. There is a soup on the table which will give you wings. It was about nine. Hazardous times do not improve punctuality. We sat down to table and had hardly enjoyed a few mouthfuls of the soup I had boasted of, when hasty steps resounded in the street, we heard a knock at the shutter. We rushed forward. The Prussians are coming, whispered one of our neighbors. They are ten miles away. They have been seen on their way to Morny. French officers have been to the mares and have pulled down the flag. Everyone is going. Goodbye, we won't lose time. I am going, you are going, we are going. Go on, O flock of sheep. Our own house is greatly alarmed. Madame Valen does not know which way to turn. Make haste, we must go at once, get our things ready. Thinking La Serbe would take us, we had packed up just what was necessary, and what was necessary meant thirteen bags. We must discard them. Feverishly we unpacked and abandoned the heavy bags. Bundles would do. 
a little linen one or two light dresses cloaks shawls a basket filled with food and we were quite ready had i not early in the morning buried in the depths of the garden a sealed-up glass jar full of jewels and with the gold pieces my mother-in-law had brought from paris had i not made a band i wore around my waist we were ready no doubt of it we did not know what to do with the bags we were bound to abandon we dragged them upstairs to a loft next my bedroom thrust them into it all topsy-turvy and hurriedly heaped up big logs at the entrance everything was in order the dogs were on their chains we had but to go here we are in the street all doors shut and off we go we wait one minute to calm our hearts and to drop a tear dear little house white walls virginia creepers when shall we meet again and what will you look like let us be gone it is time for action not for regret our neighbors next door the couple tillard were putting the donkey in their cart all ready for flight i have read somewhere that people should help one another in misfortune and so i blurted out oh monsieur tillard i suppose you are driving to the mountains we are going too would you kindly take one of our parcels with you at a loss what to answer tillard muttered between his teeth hm, already loaded don't know which way that is enough thank you i understand another pause this time at monsieur lonnet's my mother-in-law's brother stern-faced with knotted brows our uncle refuses to go not he he is fonder of his house of his gardens than of anything and the germans cannot scare him away he bends on our caravan a glance of mingled scorn and pity and on going out genevieve whispered in my ear as a last protest he is not a coward if fear could not enter monsieur lonnet's heart it reigned in the village the whole place was deserted and we were among the last to go here and there a flickering light showed that hasty preparations were still being made in a few houses terror oozed from the closed shutters hostile to the expected foe and from the doors which presently the dwellers would half open to sneak away at the end of the village in a yard a lantern moved to and fro a horse was harnessed people hurried up and down lucky rogues colette cried out who possess a cart that is true our bundles already seemed too heavy to bear but full of courage we went on left the high road crossed cerny le boussy dead empty mute another struggle and we were in the open country thus we marched on a strange little train six women attended by a small boy and two dogs silent with heavy hearts and then a voice complained it is so heavy yvonne had taken charge of the dogs and had perhaps the hardest work for these animals, as soon as they are out of doors, pull on their chain, until they almost tear out your fingers. The road was deserted, nobody in front of us, nobody behind. We were safe from attack. We decided to rest a while. Halt! We gathered our luggage into the middle of the road and sat down in a ditch. Speechless, we looked at and listened to the night. I shall never forget the night of our flight as I watched it in that meadow, silvery night studded with stars lit up by the moon warm and sweet and so quiet fields and meadows bathed in moonlight stretched on all sides southward a wood showed like a shadow and from the damp meadows rose a mist which followed the brook you might have said that large puffs of cotton wool hung in the air upon invisible threads above which emerged the tops of pollarded willows not a sound was heard only far away a carriage rattled or a dog barked and close about us the crickets sang their shrill song a godlike presence filled the world 
and the serenity of inanimate things contrasted sharply with the mad fear of men which swept us away. On this same night, uniformly kind to all, whole armies marched, dreaming of death and destruction, while thousands of wayworn fugitives wandered on towards uncertainty, misery, despair. Boom! Boom! Two formidable detonations from the fort of Laniscour shook the air, and aroused us from the torpor which crept over us. Was it a signal? We did not know. We went on. Go, take up your burden again. Hasten, the way is long. We went on, but slowly. We were tired, and baggage always retards the advance of an army. Poor snails that we were. The flood was approaching. It had driven us away, and if, in our unreasoning prudence, we resembled snails, we had not the good luck to carry a house with us. What shelter should we get? Where should we lay our tired heads? We advanced anyhow, our ears pricked, our eyes on the lookout. An alarm, this shadow on the road which moves on, black, apocalyptical, it passed by and greeted us without astonishment. Good night, ladies, a beautiful night, isn't it? We recognized old Lollet, a well-known beggar, bent with age, loaded with a wallet full to the brim. Another shadow, a white one this time, crossed our path a few steps farther on. It was a small dog which did not stop, but hurried on his way to Morny. The times were hard for dogs, too. And then look behind that stack. Two, three, five dark forms? They are people, aren't they? But still more afraid than we, they hid themselves and we passed on triumphantly. Without striking a blow, we crossed the woods and got to the fields again. On approaching Mont-en-Lanois, we heard eleven strike. The silvery sound of the bell seemed to drop from a very high tower, from the starry sky, perhaps. Here we made a feeble and vain attempt to get a carriage. No one in the streets, the very garret windows were shut up, the doors barricaded. At the end of the village we halted. We were hungry, for the good reason that we had left on the supper table the creamy milk and crusty cake, which were to end our frugal meal. But we had taken with us a few savoury chicken pâtés, which my prudent mother-in-law had made the day before. We cut slices of bread and butter, and, sitting by the wayside, made an excellent meal. We were gay, but our gaiety was fictitious. We laughed at a light anxiously flickering behind a shutter. It seemed a prey to nameless terror, and conscious of our own courage we made merry over it. The poor thing surely believed a German patrol was feasting at the gate. Two hours later we got to Vaucelle, then to Royaucourt. We were tired to death and made up our minds to seek shelter. All the barns were full of refugees, all the yards were encumbered with refugees' horses, all the streets were crowded with refugees' vehicles. We too were refugees now. Will there be any room for us, we wondered, no matter where, so long as we can rest? We stopped in front of Mademoiselle Honorine's inn. Good accommodation for man and beast. It was just what we wanted. We gave a knock at the door. Mademoiselle, mademoiselle, open the door, please. Just a small room, only chairs to sit down. But none so deaf as those who won't hear. Nothing would have roused Mademoiselle Honorine from her sweet slumbers. At length we made up our minds to rest outside on the threshold of the unrelenting house. An accommodating bench very kindly welcomed three of us. Geneviève and Antoinette, wrapped up in their cloaks, stretched on the stony ground of the courtyard. As to myself, I chose for a resting place a flight of steps. Crouching down in a comfortable corner, with Pierrot nestled in my arms, I covered our bodies with my shawl, 
and summoned sleep in vain. The stone was very hard. Yet I was comfortable and had no mind to go away. But we soon remembered we were running away and that it was high time for us to be off again. Get up, get up, it is half past two. We rose reluctantly, yawned, cleared our throats, stretched ourselves. Antoinette was so weary and so ill that we had much trouble to move her. At length we were all up. We cursed the household that had behaved so unkindly to the poor wanderers, and leaving the inhospitable village we turned to the right. The road wound its way through the woods. The moon had gone down. It was pitch dark. Our hearts quivered with fear. Our eyes searched into the shades of night, and we strained our ears like the dogs. The poor beasts disapproved of our nightly expedition, and sniffed at tufts of grass with great anxiety. "'This black mass here lying on the wayside, is it a dead body?' "'No, it is but a log. "'And there, those white spots, aren't they faces?' "'No, they are birches. "'Don't you hear a noise of steps?' "'No, it is the breaking of a dead branch.' "'We stopped to take a little breath. "'We were out of the forest. "'We had reached the top of the hill. "'Quite bare, it was not really a plateau, "'for the ground spread itself out in large waves. "'We walked along, dragging our luggage up and down the road.' Geneviève and I carried the heaviest bag and tried many experiments to make it lighter. We put it on our shoulders like an urn, on our back like a sack of flour. Like the queen of the turtles we hung it on a stick, of which each of us took an end. From time to time we stopped a minute to change hands or to listen to faraway noises. Then a slight quivering broke the stillness. We thought we heard a distant rumbling. Sometimes there were explosions. Bridges were being blown up day was already breaking. A pallor whitened the sky towards the east. We reached Ursel, prettily placed among orchards on the slope of a hill. Worn out, we sat on the edge of the pavement like so many swallows on the edge of a gutter. We were in high spirits, we exchanged jokes, and all of a sudden, Yvonne, Yvonne, laughter will end in crying. Indeed, the poor girl, still half-choked with laughter, was now sobbing bitterly. We gathered round her and tried to comfort her. Get up, get up, the inn will be open in a minute and we shall have a cup of coffee. Come. At the first glimmering of the dawn, the shop opened a shutter like a fearful eyelid. We went in. The landlady, in a dressing gown, with her black hair loose over her shoulders, dragged herself along and raised her weeping eyes. Oh, heavens, they are coming here, aren't they? What an unhappy poor creature I am! What will become of me and my daughter, aged fourteen years? what will become of us? The woman's despair amused us, and we tried to comfort her. The Prussians will never reach this out-of-the-way place. Perhaps a patrol or two will come, and that is all. All the world is seeking refuge in the mountains. Everybody knows the Prussians won't come here. On leaving Ursel, we plunged into the misty shadows of a valley. But when we got on the other side, it was glorious, dazzling. The sun was just rising, and beneath its first beams the country smiled and glistened. The meadows, bathed in dew, sparkled as though decked with gems. The air was mild, nature thrilled with joy. A lark caroled to the sun. Pierrot, drunk with light and space, danced about like a little fawn, and we ourselves, for an insect or a flower, for a bush covered with bright berries, leapt like goats. Our thoughts were lighter than the soft mists melting in the sun. War, it is but a myth, invasion, an idle tale, danger, an illusion. Weariness, pangs, mental sufferings, all were forgotten. 
We were young, we were strong, we breathed the fresh air with ecstasy, and the splendor of the hour intensified our love of life. Danger is life, war is victory, and blessed be the hand which bestows on mankind black nights and white mornings, dull cares and consoling joys. With light hearts we took to our cheerful road. We marched for one hour, and then doubts arose. Mother, you have taken the wrong road, I am sure. Chevrigny is not so far. Yet at a turn of the road we caught sight of Chevrigny, nestled in verdure, crouched in a hollow way. We marveled at the pointed steeple, at the red tiles or blue slates of the roofs. So we prepared to make an entrance into the village worthy of us and it. We sat by the wayside and took small looking-glasses and powder-puffs out of our leather-bags. Powder is as necessary to women as to soldiers, isn't it? We did our hair, brushed our dresses, and then went down the village street, quite smart. We turned to the right and entered the big farm of Madame Lachois. Surprise! Exclamations! Arms lifted up to the sky and then clasped around us in a close embrace. Boundless friendship and endless hospitality were promised us. But tell us, dear cousin, who are all these people we see gathered in your domain? Madame Lachois had already given hospitality to twenty-one refugees in her barns and cart-sheds, and had received into the bargain certain solid citizens of Léon, persons whom she honored with her friendship and best rooms. We did not allow them to move from their quarters. If mother is provided for, dear cousin, it is all that we want. Don't bother about us. We will sleep in the hayloft. It will be delightful. When these matters were settled, we refreshed ourselves. How delightful it was, after that painful night, to take a bath, to loll in an armchair, to sit at a table where fresh bread, golden butter, and transparent jam smiled upon us. We found a charm in the smallest pleasures and thought, Now we are quiet. Now we are in safety. We shall suffer nothing at the hands of the abhorred invader. We shall not see the shadow of their helmets on our walls. We shall not hear the tramping of their horses on our pavements. The booming of their cannon will not roll over our hearts. But what did we hear? We stood up speechless with horror. The street rang with loud cries, and those cries were, The Prussians! The Prussians! End of chapter 3